Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. All right, guys, on this week's episode, I'm really, really happy to sit down and chat to Coach Donnie Bigham. Donnie Bigham recently retired at the rank of Major after 27 years of service with the U.S. Army. Having served in every position in an infantry rifle company, from enlisted to officer and deployed to Bosnia, Afghanistan, Kuwait, and Yemen. During this time, he has served as the first ever strength conditioning coach in uniform for the U.S. Army. He played an instrumental role in changing the U.S. Army physical fitness test after almost 40 years to the Army combat fitness test and led the effort to design the occupational performance assessment test for initial screening of potential recruits. Lastly, he designed the Tactical Athlete Performance Center at Fort Jackson and rewrote the Master Fitness Trainer curriculum to ensure all warriors are successful in all tactical tasks. Donnie has served as the Director of Human Performance at the Tactical Athlete Performance Center at Fort Benning, Georgia. The TAPC is the first ever performance center that trains over 600 soldiers daily with a combat battalion that was designed under Major Bigham's tenure. He's also designed the Tactical Athlete Performance Assessment at the Army Wellness Center that truly tests baseline strength of the tactical athlete necessary to move under loads at 30% of their body weight. He was the Army Male Athlete of the Year in 2016 and the 2017 NSCA TSAC Facilitator of the Year. As well as his military achievements, he's a two-time Royal World Masters Powerlifting Champion in 2015 and 2016 with the International Powerlifting Federation and finished third place at the Worlds in 2019. He currently holds the squat world record in IPF and the world record squat, deadlift and total in the IPL. He's a four-time national champion and a five-time member of the Team USA Powerlifting. Donnie earned his Bachelor of Science degree in Physical Education from the University of South Carolina and his master's degree in sports management with a concentration in coaching theories from American Military University. He'll begin his PhD track in human and sports performance at Rocky Mountain University in the summer of 2021. And to top all this off, Donnie is currently partnering with Sorinex to develop the Tactical Athlete app that will ensure that every person in uniform, from military to first responder, has a daily training plan that is tiered individually to maximize the God-given potential to physically and mentally dominate any task required of them. In this episode, Donnie talks about the challenge of changing culture, the logistics of building and running the Tactical Athlete Performance Center, and the future developments of military performance training. Good afternoon, Donnie, and welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, John. I really appreciate the opportunity to come out and speak with you, you know, with your efforts that you're doing out there in Scotland. It's it's a blessing, it's an honor, and and I'm glad to uh, reach out to the listeners and hopefully give them some nuggets that they can put in their rucksack uh, to allow them to be successful uh, on this effort to really make a difference for the warrior. Hey man, I appreciate that. And then hey, listening to you on some other chats and stuff, I'm sure they're definitely going to get something from this that they can take away. Um, as, a, as I've said to you before, Donnie, you know, I came across you when I was going for YouTube. I, I came across your, your presentation at Sorenex Summer Strong. Uh, as a side note, you know, what uh, Pops and Bert are doing with regards to that is awesome, bringing guys together from all different facets of, you know, sport, the military and that, and just putting on what is probably one of the premier conferences I've ever seen. Um, but on that, you know, when I was watching your presentation, I think it was within the first 30 to 60 seconds, I was hooked in, you know, just your your passion and your energy just came straight across when you are presenting. I was just like, right, cool. There's a guy I want on the show it's Donnie. So that's why I reached out, mate. So thank you very much for picking that up. Thank you so much, John. That is definitely my passion. Uh, that's one of the things I've been told a long time ago that, you know, I might not do a lot of things right, but I usually know how to motivate people. Uh, and sometimes if that motivation's in the right direction, 
you know, you can allow them to have change. That's a positive manner. Nice, man. Nice. And obviously, Donna, you had an incredible career and we'll get into the little parts of that now. Um, but for anyone who's listening who hasn't come across you or even seen you on YouTube yet, uh, can you give us a little bit of a background of, you know, where your career started out and where you're currently at now? Well, my career started out in the military back in 1991. I enlisted in the Marines. Um, I spent, you know, a small uh, first contract in the Marines. Uh, after I completed that, I, I jumped on that GI Bill money and, you know, started going to school. And um, from there, I, I had a passion to want to get back in the uniform full time. And, you know, it just wasn't an opportunity for me to go back in the Marines because of my age, because this was prior to 9-11. Uh, the cutoff was 27, so I was on that fence line. So that's when I made the transition to the Army uh, and, and, and became an officer in the Army, uh, served in, in pretty much every uh, position in an infantry uh, company and an infantry battalion, minus the SAR major and, and the battalion commander, uh, served in every one of those positions and, and was blessed tremendously, you know, with all the men that I had an opportunity to serve with. Um, I deployed. Uh, to Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Yemen, and Syria, and Kuwait. Uh, those are some of the places I deployed. Uh, and I got an opportunity in 2014 to really get after, you know, kind of the root of my passion, and that is the ability to give the tools necessary for the soldier uh, to win on the battlefield. Uh, because we're warfighters, and, and our responsibility is, is to decisively defeat the enemy that prevent, presents a threat to, you know, anybody in the United States. Uh, so I, I passionately worked in that field as a head strength coach for the Master Fitness School out at Fort Jackson. I did that for a few years. Uh, and then I was asked by the commanding general at Fort Benning uh, to come there. Uh, and I spent my last four years in the Army uh, as a chief of human performance there got an opportunity to continue to collaborate uh, with that H2F, the holistic health and fitness model and build some performance centers and start hiring some strength coaches from the collegiate professional type arena so that we can really get subject matter experts with our soldiers so they truly can move as professionals uh, because it's unfortunate, the muscle endurance, the aerobic base and the body weight training that we've done for you know, over 240 years uh, in the uniform, minus our special operators over the last 10 or 15 years, that is essentially what they've done. So I think we owe that uh, to, the, to the soldier that was in the uniform. And that's what drove me uh, to be able to really finish up my career uh, serving in the passions and desires uh, that I, I really had that was rooted in me as I was a young boy. That's awesome, Donnie. And I mean, what was it that initially spurred you on, you know, to pursue that military career? You said there at the start, you went in with the Marines first and then obviously came out, made use of that GI Bill and then went back in. Well, that's a great question. You know, we, we, we all join a lot of times. We don't really understand what God's plan is moving forward. And we think, you know, we're just, we're just doing this for a little stint. But, you know, I got in there. I really like the camaraderie. You know, I like the discipline. I like the spree core. I like the ability uh, to not be limited to reach your potential. It's just like a lot of civilian jobs, you know, you, you have the education or you have the skill and the mindset, 
you're essentially a lot of times handcuffed on what you can and cannot do because you might be inside of a, a state-run facility or a government facility, or you might be working for some civilian organization. Uh, but I seen there was an opportunity, you know, with my self-discipline uh, and my hard work uh, and my willingness to learn on a daily basis, I felt like the sky was the limit and I could really serve, you know, in an area that could be a, a game changer, you know, and hopefully change you know, how we train and fight. And, you know, it was essentially an answer prayer because I didn't see it, you know, back in 93, 94, you know, and I went to University of South Carolina and I started going to school and playing a little college baseball and stuff. I was just like, you know, what's what's the end state here? You know, how, how am I going to be able to do this? Uh, because when I went to OCS and, you know, a lot of the leaders asked me, what was my passion? You know, what, what did I want to do? Most people will tell you, well, I'm an infantry officer and I want to be a battalion commander or a brigade commander. I want to be a general one day. Well, I, I said, I want to be a strength coach. And they're like, well, there's no job for a strength coach. You're not going to be able to serve in that capacity. But, you know, over over time, you know, after that initial wave and getting that schooling and getting back in, back in and serving in that community, you know, I knew about by the time it was 2001 through 2003 with 9-11 that this was going to be my career. Uh, and I was going to really strive uh, not to focus on, you know, promotions, not to focus on my individual attributes. That's what you'll be able to talk about when we get to the powerlifting side, but to really focus on making the soldier better and having the young enlisted person have a better opportunity uh, to reach their potential. No, that's awesome. That's awesome, Donnie. I mean, you touched upon it briefly there as well, mentioned about your powerlifting stuff. And obviously you, you said he wanted to be a strength conditioning coach, not, not general, you know, when you pursued this career down as well. Where did that interest come from? Was that, did you develop a love for the iron when you were in baseball or did it come later on? Well, I tell you, it started for me back when I was about 12 or 13 years old. I, I was really interested in the muscle magazines. I was really interested in, you know, pumping iron with Arnold and, you know, a lot of those people. And I just like, I knew it was not going to be tall in stature. I was a very explosive athlete, but I said, I want to be strong. And I started seeing some of it. My dad bought me some of them little old cement weights and I put it in between me and my brother's bunk beds. It sat in the middle of the floor. We would close the door and I was, I was five years older than him. So he used to fuss at me because the room would turn it like into a sauna because I'd be in there working out, you know, late in the evening. And that's where my passion started. But when I got out to Okinawa, Japan in 1992, you know, I, I was blessed to run into a gentleman by the name of Sly Anderson. Uh, he was he was a 10-time world champion in powerlifting. He was a bodybuilder. He was a Marine fixing to retire in the next three to five years. He was just a massive man. And I went out and tried out for the team uh, on in Okinawa. And, you know, he gave me the worst workout I'd ever in my life when it comes to an iron uh, and barbells. And I made that team. And, and he was just such a great teacher. Uh, he's very passionate every day. He brought a high energy and he and, he, you know, he was willing to get down there with you and try to help you get better. Being that I was at a, an 18, 19 year old level, you know, and he was up in his mid to late 30s and he was at his prime. I mean, he he was at the peak of his training regimen and I was just getting started. But you would have never knew it, you know, because he was just that uh, approachable, that uh, mindset of trying to make you better. So that's where it started for me. And I competed uh, until about 98 um obviously with college baseball and stuff I didn't do as much heavyweight there because it's kind of a little bit more on the opposite spectrum you don't want to really have too much mass 
you know, when you when you're playing shortstop and second base and want to be kind of agile on your feet. Um, and then I punted it to the right, as I told you earlier. All the combat deployments, you know, my focus was on war fighting. Uh, I still did do some iron training, but it was never for a platform. It was to ensure that I could set the example for my soldiers and to ensure that I could prevent injuries, injuries for myself. So I didn't actually get back on the platform uh, in 2012. Uh, I waited towards the end of my command and my leadership roles. Uh, I was moving more into a staff function and moving more into a strength condition role in 2014. Uh, so that's where my focus started to go back to more of the individual, my own personal goals, because I knew I was coming towards the end of my military career there was no other, you know, special operations school. There was no, you know, probably any other major deployments going to require me uh, to get in the fight on a daily basis. I'm going to be more in a staff role. So I knew that's when it was time to kind of get back up under the iron. And I went to a state meeting, finished third on my first one. I said, oh, I still got a little bit here. You know, maybe with a little training, I might can get after it again. And, you know, God bless me with an opportunity really within two and a half years later I was down in South Africa and finished in the top six in the world. And in the year later, I won the world championship back-to-back -back years and, and kind of the list went on then uh, from that standpoint. And that's awesome. I think, uh, I think many of us can uh, trace our, our lifting roots back to those cement York barbells. You know, I, I definitely had a set when I was a kid in the garage and bedroom sort of thing. So, yeah, you're in good company, my friend. Um, <laughs> Appreciate it, John. I was going to say though, Donnie, as well, like it's interesting to hear that, you know, you, you picked it up a little bit later on in your career as well. Like, you know, obviously you started when you were in the Marines and then put it aside a little bit while you're concentrating on being like the, the professional warfighter that you were as well and trying to maximize your performance there. Because one of my big questions is going to be, you know, as such an accomplished lifter and you're on right there as well, how did you balance that, you know, with being a, a soldier where, you know, typically that training is very much endurance-based, the long runs, the high-end calisthenics uh, stuff as well? Most definitely. I mean, because of my science and the education that I learned, you know, when I was getting my undergrad uh, in an exercise science-related field, it really taught me that I was missing the mark. You know, the Marines was all about body weight exercising, like you said, a lot of, a lot of endurance events. Uh, but I started seeing some benefits in my young career as an enlisted soldier you know, when I did add in my deadlift training, when I added in, you know, some of my basic uh, ollie lifting into my training, when I did some basic periodization with some sprint and anaerobic training, I started seeing the results of I was still getting better uh, where a lot of my peers had flattened out. They had essentially, you know, uh, plateaued and they were just not getting any better. I mean, I ran, you know, my best five mile time, for example, you know, uh, training up for ranger school and stuff. I read that, ran that in my, you know, 30s. I ran a sub 30 minute mile, uh, five miler. So that was under six minute mile pace. I, I squatted over 600 pounds at, you know, 45 years of age. That's the most I'd ever squatted raw without, you know, any specific equipment or nothing at 180 pound or 83 kilogram body weight. Um, you know, so to be able to manage that, you got to see the big picture. And the more you can have a dialogue with that commander, and as a young enlisted soldier, E5 and E6, that's what I did. So I got an opportunity to start to be involved a little bit with the programming for the unit. So I had visibility to be able to see a short or long-term plan to say, these are when our long runs are. These are when our long foot marches are. I knew these is where I had to offset some of my strength training 
shots. I actually started to add in again some of that periodization. And then when I became a platoon leader and how the Army structure works, most of your commanders will allow you to develop your own PT program, you know, for your soldiers. You know, I had 45 soldiers. So I started writing my own programs for the soldiers that we executed back in 2001. Um, and I was very consistent with that throughout almost every organization I was involved with as a leader. I wrote all the programming for that organization from 2001 until about 2013. So during that 12 year stint, I was already running the tactical athlete model in every organization I was in. And you start, commanders start to see that and you start to see reduction in injuries. You start to see soldiers getting better, getting stronger because in 2003, that's when they threw on the biggest heaviest rucksack for the soldier. You know, it required us to wear body armor. They added anywhere between 40 and 60 pounds to every soldier you know, in a combat fight. And when you add that, if you don't have a baseline strength, you're not going to be able to sustain that stress. The musculoskeletal injuries are going to get too high. And the units that I served in and had the capacity to do that, we were able to sustain that. And that dialogue started to develop at brigade and division level commanders that they started reaching back to me going, what is, what is Donnie Bigham doing different than maybe some of the other commanders that's out there uh, that's not allowing them to reach their potential and is having a high percentage of injuries. That's cool to hear that, Donnie, and just to see, like you say, them giving you that freedom to do what you want with regards to the PT thing and then having that knock-on effect of obviously reducing the musculoskeletal injuries but also improving that performance of the warfighter, especially nowadays when guys are having to rock under the heaviest loads, you know, at all times sort of thing as well. And it's just... It's interesting to see that and that development from the inside out. Because um, I know from like a lot of strength coaches I've seen who are working within the military now, it's very much them coming in has been contracted in, you know, external contractors either from pure civilians or guys who were in the military, you know, gone out and come back in and as a contractor role. But I think it's interesting from looking at you and, you know, when I first saw you on Summer Strong, it was just like, how you affected change from within the organization as an officer as well and created that 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 change pathway as well um so what was it like for you then you know you were working with your guys you're helping them get better and improve within their physical fitness and start to get picked up by command what, where did you see that culture shift starting to change at that point well within my organization i would say it was when i was in uh, company command with baker company 115 um, I started to see after about six months into my command and our numbers were higher than everybody else within the brigade. And we had the, the least amount of injuries uh, in ratios. Uh, that's when I started to be able to have a dialogue. And once I had a dialogue and got an opportunity to get some FaceTime with some of those senior commanders, they started giving me some resources. They started giving me an opportunity to have a little more latitude to impact the force at a larger scale instead of just my own organization. Because when I became an HHC commander, you know, I was responsible for about 355 soldiers, which was a larger uh, footprint, but those soldiers spread out into other units as small pockets. So it was essentially train the trainer. And now that trainer can take some of those nuggets and bring it to that other formation. So it started to kind of blossom. It just essentially started to take off within the division. Uh, and 
that's really where I started to see it. Uh, and that's where the dialogue started to happen as I made that transition coming out of command to say, we're going to be in support of you moving to the U.S. Army Physical Fitness School because there's only one school in the whole military at the time. The Marines is, has made something very similar. I know you talked with Tyler Christensen. He's doing something very similar now with the Air Force. So there's still in the infancy, but the Army had a master fitness school since about 1993. But the problem was they was not really giving them a lot of the tools they needed to utilize a science-based approach. They were allowing them to be more of an advisor to that commander. They essentially had enough to be dangerous. The curriculum was still body weight based, aerobic based. It was not core fundamentally built around strength because that we all know that anybody understands about anything about the science, strength is the only aspect that carries across every sport. I don't care if I'm a marathon runner. In certain phases of my training, I should have strength uh, enveloped into it. Just like if I am a strength athlete, that's obviously going to be my priority, but it's going to be able to go into every facet. Aerobic training, muscle endurance does not carry over in every sport or every movement pattern. Um, so with that being said, once I got nested in with, it, with the U.S. Army Physical Fitness School, I had the ability to start to change curriculum there, and that allowed those master fitness trainers, and that was about 2,500 a year, that were E6s, which is like a, a squad leader, and young platoon leaders and young commanders to now go back out to their units and take that information and make an impact immediately with the ability to have touch points to reach back to our team to help them further along, like, send us a copy of your periodization and your programming. We will scrub it. We will give you some advice so you can advise that commander that's in line with the science. So we was able to start to make some change. Uh, and that's really when I started to see the culture for the army moving in that direction. Nice. And I mean, for obviously changing the school, uh, the curriculum there, the master of fitness school, was there any pushback initially on you at all, Donnie, or had you proved yourself enough with the results you were getting? They no, were like, they was, there was a lot of pushback. I mean, it was a lot of pushback even to the last day I, I retired. Um, oh, okay. It's just unfortunate. You know, we did it to ourselves. You know, we wrote our field manuals uh, to essentially empower the commander to be in charge of combat readiness for every unit they command, which is great but we've never put a staff, a member on their staff, like you would if I've got a lawyer, if I've got a chaplain, those are gonna be your experts. When I've got a counseling issue or I've got a legal issue comes up, the commander brings them in and he gets advice before they make that decision. There was never an, a counselor or an advisor that was essentially a physical fitness expert that could come into that command team and say, you know, sir or ma'am, this is not in compliance with the science. You need to go this direction. So we've never empowered that. So at every level, unless you was with some commander that has either been in the special ops community and worked with strength coaches or been a collegiate or professional athlete or have a passion and a desire to understand the science, you are essentially talking to a wall a lot of times because we empower them so that commander can pull that manual and say, I am ultimately responsible for this unit. You don't have a say. 
I, I don't really care if you're an expert. I don't really care if this commander said that you're in charge of it. I'm not going to use you. Well, that's interesting from there as well. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a tough thing to change when there's so much dogma and, you know, um, history around these sort of things as well. Um, with regards to that then, Donnie, you know, moving from uh, the Master of Fitness School, what did you go directly from that uh, posting into your role as head of performance down at uh, Fort Benning, or was there stuff in between there as well? That's saying? correct. So I spent from 14 to 16 at the Master Fitness School, and I went straight from there that summer of 16. Uh, I went right to Fort Benning. I uh, was hand selected, uh, and you know I sat down with uh, uh, General Wesley, and he is, and he essentially said, Donnie, there's no job description. I don't have a job description for you. There's no position. I'm going to put you, label you as a striker teacher, like teaching the striker, which is our wheel vehicle. And I've never even been on one. I, I was an airborne infantryman and I was a mechanized infantry. So I, I only use like equivalent to tanks. I haven't done a lot of like wheel vehicles, but they labeled me as a striker uh, instructor. And then he told me I'm the chief of human performance. He said, you report to me and me only. I will give you all the latitude to do what you need to do. I trust you. You write your job description. I want to get after the ability for this Fort Benning. And I don't know if you understand what Fort Benning is for the Army, but for the Army, they train all their infantry soldiers. They train all their infantry officers, all their armor officers. So all the maneuver leaders, all uh, NCOs within the infantry and armor community, you have Ranger School. Airborne school, sniper school, the list goes on. So that is really the root. That is the foundation of the warfighter is at Fort Benning for the Army. Your SEALs go there. Your Marine Force Recon go through there for airborne school, some other various schools. So there's a lot of spe special operators that start at Fort Benning for some school or another. Um, so I was at the perfect place with the right commander that trusted me fully and supported me. So everywhere I went, not only on the installation, but I traveled to over 20 other different installations and I had his name as a backing. So it gave me the ability to essentially, I wore a major on my rank as an 04, but I really had a two star. It was backing everything I was doing. So it really gave me the most ability to really get after that mission uh, because there was no more having to go to a round table and go through a working group and have discussion after discussion. It was essentially, I would write a, a white paper is nothing but a research document. He allowed me to build my team of about six people on my staff. And I took those personnel and we essentially started getting after it. So we started off at, at Fort Benning. We started off with our, um, our AWC, that's our army wellness center. So I built a tactical athlete assessment there that soldiers would go through and they would get an FMS screening. They would get a body weight uh, squat uh, assessment to ensure they could do body weight, deadlift, some other various tests, uh, some uh, anaerobic tests. So we, I hired a uh, contracted strength coach from Auburn that had a master's degree in that field. She was uh, had been a former D1 swimmer. She came in and ran that program for me. Kaylee did a great job. Uh, so we had that going. And then before you know it, we started the tap C. It took us about two years, you know, to get that up and running. But in the meantime, I went to places out like Fort Lewis, Washington, with their BWAP program. It's a bayonet 
athletic warrior program and helped them rewrite their curriculum to where I started to collaborate out in Hawaii with 25th ID uh, and, and allowed that opportunity and that relationship to start to impact their mental capacity. They was doing a lot with General Brown uh, when it comes to, they called it the green book, but what it was essentially was doing was merging the physical and sports psychology or mental aspect for the warrior so it becomes seamless. It's conducted in application instead of in a classroom. That's what the Army had done for a long time was, you know, you bring yourself into a classroom and you just get a bunch of PowerPoint presentations on mental awareness and dealing with icebergs and et cetera. We allow that uh, collaboration to start to merge that. Uh, so yes, it started small, but eventually I got to the point where I was almost treading water that I needed some help um, because I wanted to help everybody. I didn't want to tell nobody no. Um, but at the end of the day, I was only one person and my team was a great team, but I didn't have anybody else on my staff that either had an undergrad or a master's degree in an exercise science related field. So everybody else on my team had a degree in another field and they had a passion, but I had to educate them and I had to still take the lead where they had to do sometimes some other roles that was very important, like, you know, obviously getting our building up and running and getting the infrastructure in place to, you know, training our NCOs. Uh, but it, it was a, I got to admit, it was a pretty heavy strain that I took there for a while, but it, it was well worth it. You know, it was, it was, it drove me. It was like, I didn't even go to work every day. Um, the problems only I had was again, dealing with the command sometimes when they were not receptive uh, so the good thing is I would always just refer it back to my two-star uh, so they could have that kind of heart-to-heart dialogue because at the end of the day, I didn't have to waver. I could stand firm at what I thought needed to happen, and I had the support of my command. That's awesome to hear. And it was you said it was General Wesley who was uh, very much backing you there as well. That's cool to have that back. And, and then it just sounds like you just took off you hit the ground running, you know, and work across multiple sites there as well and getting that built up. Yeah, I mean, I took him up to Atlanta, you know, uh, with Jesse. He was a strength coach then. He just changed out with Atlanta um, Falcons in football. So when I first started working right with, with uh, General Wesley, I, uh, I set up an appointment to go uh, link up with Jesse Ackerman uh, right there in Atlanta. It was only about an hour and a half away. I, I took uh, another team of NCOs up there with me. But I brought General Wesley, and we got an opportunity, and he got to see what, what does it look like to truly have a performance center, and, and how does this operate? And he was able to talk to somebody at the highest level to essentially support me, and, and that was one of the, uh, I'd say, the cornerstones, you know, of our foundation and our relationship uh, moving forward uh, those next four years. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, of all the things you were doing there, you, you mentioned very, very briefly about the, the Tactical uh, Athlete Performance Center, the TACP. I mean, first of all, what an incredible facility. I've seen some of the photos and videos doing the rounds online is just incredible. Like the floor space, the, everything there that's been fit, that was incredible. I miss it, man. That's one of the big things I miss. I, I could go in there and train there, you know, every day. And people would say, how do you get the best training facility in the world? I said, I was blessed. You know, Sona next took care of us. Uh, they did the Master Fitness School down at Fort Jackson. I got that center built in 15. Uh, and then when I nested over at Fort Benning, 
there was no doubt there was only one organization I was going to go with and that, you know, and I, I was able to get Bert and his team in there. Uh, and at the time when we built that center prior to the one being built, built out of the Air Force Academy, it was the largest one they'd ever built. Yeah. They had never built a center with, with 40 racks in it uh, with that capacity of training 600 people in a day. Damn. I mean, it's it's incredible. You mentioned their numbers. I was going to ask you about logistics, just from both ends of the spectrum there, Donnie, like one logistics, getting that, that place built and just getting it from the ground up, you know, going. And then at the later stage there, like you say, running 600 people through that building in a day. You know, how do you manage that? Well, you know, it, it starts with, you know, hiring a great team. Uh, there's no way, you know, I can take credit for any of that. There, you just cannot facilitate it. But it's, it's hiring a great team. Uh, it's essentially putting together a planning model, rehearse that, and continue to do lessons learned. We had an awesome opportunity. You know, we opened the doors in December of 18. We brought our first unit in in March of 19. Uh, so it gave us three months. I really wanted six months for our team and get everything up and running. But I had to also, you know, make my commander happy too. Uh, he wanted everybody in that center earlier than that, but we got them in there. And I'm going to tell you, we just continued to improve the system. It was broken at the start, but by the time we got 90 days into it, it run like a smooth, well-oiled machine uh, because we done little simple things like just lessons learned after we got done and we brought all those leaders in, we threw it on a whiteboard and then we made adjustments. We made adjustments. We made adjustments to eventually you you would have the, the company would come in, you know, at let's say they started at six o'clock in the morning. You would have a 10 man team from that company that would show up about 15 minutes prior and they would link up with every coach. You would teach them the exercises and go over that. That's got to be executed during that block so that they understand the basic cues. They know what right looks like. So they can also be part of the guys that's got another set of eyes to allow it to run smoother. So we start incorporating that to incorporating groups and putting them in specific uh, energy systems, movement patterns, and based on where their periodization was so that now they get what they need and they have the maximum amount of coaches. So our priority was, was the tactical circuits. So we put the most emphasis on that. That was the biggest piece. As I said, if we're truly training warriors, it's the same thing if I'm training an NFL football player. Their area of emphasis has got to be reflected in their sport. You got to see the improvements there. If you don't see it there, it don't really matter how much they squat. It really doesn't matter how much they deadlift. You know, it doesn't have, matter how fast they run their two-miler. If you cannot transfer that over into their sport specificity, it's irrelevant. So when I say we did that for the tactical side, I had two sports psychologists. They were assigned to each lane. So we would essentially take they would get one training session every week that is a tactical circuit. It's their whole squad. It's anywhere from eight to 12 people on that turf, in their kit, in their uniform. They had a sports psychologist. We had four coaches on that lane. So when you do the ratio, you're like a one to two. When you go to our squat racks and you're running maybe a strength block, I might have but four people on that whole lane. And out of that whole lane, I might have 60 people on that lane. Yeah. That tells you that's not our number one piece. Now, don't get me wrong. We did simple things like the first two weeks was all teaching. You know, so if we had a group of 12 weeks, they get two weeks of teaching on the front end. Where we'd have more coaches, we'd have ability to correct. They would be doing simple things like doing everything with their shoes off. 
so we can focus on the groundwork up. So it's the little things that my team were able to get buy-in on from those soldiers, and eventually it turns into a really well-oiled machine. So you're essentially putting people, if I've got OCS, like your uh, officer school come in, they wear a certain shirt. So like if I got my uniform on, I'm on a turf. If I'm wearing a white t-shirt, you know, I'm on a rack. If I'm wearing a brown t-shirt, I'm running. So it's easy. It starts to put people in different groups and you've got coaches as trained where they need to be uh, to run warm-ups, to run, work the execution of the program, to do the recovery. You know, it's just really simple when you look at the big concept, but you just have to, again, break it down and really establish that foundation and then have everything set on a clock and have somebody that manages that time and don't allow it to deviate. And then eventually what you're doing, by the time we had, you know, three months into it, within 90 minutes, you know, everybody got 60 minutes of workout. They got a good 10 to 12 minutes warm up on the front end. They got a good 10 to 12 minutes of recovery on the back end. And you had teams that come in and got the instruction. You had a 10 man team that done a cleanup at the end. So it just, it just ran really smooth. And then we would have another hour, hour and a half reset for our coaches to plug in data, to get, you know, adjustments for the next group because they might be on a different block. Okay. And then we would have our facility managers, which were uh, undergrad and master level strength coaches that would then help set up the next uh, block. And again, we'd run that same thing for another hour and a half. We'd get an hour, hour and a half block and we'd run another group. So we would shift our coaches and we I built teams. So I had an A team for the morning, a B team in the afternoon, the A group. And that's why I say the strength coaches loved it because they didn't work 60, 80 hours a week as GS employees. Yeah. It was only 40 hours. So if they came in at five, they were off at one or two o'clock. You know, if the, if the group that was running the afternoon block, they would come in around 9, 30, 10. And then they would be the one that runs the afternoon closeout when it might start at 3.30, yeah. you know, and finishes up around five or 1,700. So it gave us the ability to be able to deal with all that logistics nightmare, you know, that you would have when you're trying to run that. But at the end of the day, to go back to summarize what I say is you got to hire the right team and you got to be willing and receptive to listen to every one of the members because each one of them's got a different angle they can bring to the table that allows that well-oiled machine to run smoother. That's awesome, dude. And I mean, to be able to be uh, that slick with it and run those guys through in those groups is awesome to hear. You mentioned there briefly about, you know, you, you debrief, you know, your lessons learned, uh, you'd pick up on them and try and make those improvements for the next uh, blocks and stuff. What, what were the, the, especially in the early days, you know, the, the lessons learned, the, the quick ones that you quickly write, right, we need to... Biggest lesson learned, obviously, from uh, our standpoint, was minimizing risk. You know, if I had a command team come in, like a SAR major or a battalion commander, I don't want to have unnecessary risk. So that was our priority from the beginning. Is we we got to take away any kind of risk that we all know there's risk in the weight room, there's risk and risk in handling a weapon. But at the end of the day, we didn't need unnecessary risk. So things like transitioning where our landmines was, and we had sledge being run on a turf, was put in a buffer to know where that space was going to have to be. It's going to have to be protected. To know where our coaches was and to ensure that was the first priority. If I walked down that lane of turf, I had to spot check that line. If it was off, I had to make the on-spot correction right then. If that's the second time I'd already told that group, they were going to have to report to another higher person to get this fixed. Uh, because we knew if we did take a major injury in there, it was going to be a big problem from the beginning. So obviously risk drove, drove the beginning. And we did have some issues with transition or what we call crossing the street. So when that many people is moving, 
when they crossed the turf, they had to look both ways because we had we had stuff running up and down. We had people running around shooting lasers on it, et cetera. So that was our first priority. Our other big pieces in the beginning was we didn't spend enough time with some of our coaches understanding the specific cues. So one coach maybe would say the same cue, but use a different verbiage, which would start to make it confusing. For example, if I'm talking about hip hinge, you know, and I want them to focus hip hinge, for example, is a number one piece on a deadlift. Mm-hmm. You walk by and you hear loosely somebody talking about their hand placement. They're talking about, you know, their back's not flat. They're talking about my head's not neutral. We had to go back to the foundation again to say, we've got to be saying the same two or three key words. It's got to be uh, put in their mind. So at the end of the day, that lieutenant or that sergeant that's doing that training can go back to their unit and now train their own people. Because what we were doing was running like a 12-week block and training them for maybe a course or training them for a particular school they had to graduate for or training them if they were in a unit. But at the end of the day, that soldier is going to leave the TAP C and go and be in front of other soldiers at some point in their career. And we wanted them to take away those key nuggets. So that was just number two. Number three was the inconsistency of our medical staff. Um, That was one of our biggest things that we had challenges with. I really, if I could go back and do it over, I would have got GS employees for our PTs, our ATs, et cetera. But the Army already had them in system, in the system. So like PTs are provided by uniform. ATs at Fort Benning was provided by a contract. So I essentially had to kind of use the system that was in place. And the problem was because it was a brand new program, the Army didn't have the ability to allocate like a PT, a captain to be assigned to my center. I had to borrow and steal somebody from a different center to really help out. That was one of our biggest pieces in the metal piece because I really wanted that to be bridged so that our medical officers could be talking to the commanders as their advisor, talking about the benefits of having, you know, baseline strength, the benefits of having, you know, meeting a 30 degree angle on a dorsiflexion on an ankle, you know, certain things I wanted them to be able to articulate that they captured inside that center. So we missed that mark. That was one of the things, you know, we got better towards the end, but our first 90 days, we really didn't have zero touch points. I mean, we had to refer people out of our center to go to those other medical facilities to get approval to be able to do certain things, you know, inside of our center, because that's just how it works, you know, in the uniform. Uh, Some other uh, issues we had in the beginning um, was our MWR building itself. We had to share that facility with our combative school. Okay. And our main floor, our 25,000 square foot training area, that was not impacted. It was our storage area and some other areas upstairs in our mezzanine that was impacted initially. Um, Hindsight, if we could have just owned the whole building, it would have been a little bit smoother for us, but we all know when you bring in a, a outside civilians that I've hired that don't really understand the military uh, from a big picture, uh, it causes some uh, different tensions and different frustrations. Because again, if I'm a strength coach, you know, at the University of South Carolina and I come in and I'm the director of human performance, I pretty much own that, that footprint. You know what I mean? I'm not having to share it on a daily basis with somebody else. 
so those were probably some of our biggest issues uh, in the beginning. And I alluded to it loosely uh, just in my last comment is, you know, when you hire uh, civilian strength coaches, that's the benefit of having a person like me or somebody in uniform that understands the science and can bridge that gap because we all know it's another whole language. Yeah. If I'm talking about clearing the room and you got a commander that walks in and goes, how is this going to improve our six alpha, our battle drill six alpha? You know what I mean? If I'm a strength coach and all I've ever worked with is football players, I'm probably going to give you that deer in the headlight look. And then if I can't even understand it on what it looks like, you start to lose that rapport with that commander with regards to buy-in since it's still such a new uh, emphasy of building those performance centers. That's interesting to hear as well. And like you say, buying in and building into that culture. One thing I find interesting as well, you're saying, you know, borrowing uh, medical staff from other centers as well, come and support you guys. And one of the things I really liked about, you know, your your presentation you did, Summer Strong was saying about, you know, uh, supporting and trying to empower strength conditioning coaches from within the military. And I know US Army do a great job for supporting, you know, soldiers who want to go through different training programs, obviously um, the, the medical school down at Baylor for PT school for a lot of the guys for DIACs as well to go down there as well. But there's nothing for the strength coach out there as well. And you've been pushing a lot for that. How do you see command in the future trying to support the strength coach either from, you know, the enlisted side coming through or the officer side, you know, actually within or from that GS, you know, perspective coming in as well? That's uh, that's a great question, John. We're, you know, Obviously, since I'm not nested with the Army on a daily basis, I was previously, but I can only allude to what was going on uh, while I was in the uniform and some of the dialogues I've had since I've retired. Uh, but that is in its infancy. It is uh, in the process of being an MOS, in the process of being a branch uh, as an officer position. Um, is this something that's going to happen overnight? No. Uh, anytime you come up with a new MOS for the enlisted side, you could be looking at, you know, uh, 18 months to 36 months uh, for something like that to transpire to at least start a pilot um, because they have to have the manning and they have to understand how to allocate that position from, you know, your company level all the way through your division level at every entity. What is the role, you know, what is the rank and the requirement, you know, if I'm in a company, you know, is that an E6 squad level? Where do we pull that E6? We don't have it already in you know, the system. So do we recruit people, you know, that's going to be able to start to fill that gap? That's one of the dialogues that we had. And we, we done a lot of white papers and wrote all that up and, and got that to our G1 uh, for the army when I was in, and they were all essentially sold on that uh, to include our, um, our trade community, which essentially trains the force. So they train somebody to be an infantryman. They train somebody to be an engineer, um, you know, and they would be able to train somebody to essentially be uh, a strength coach, maybe a, just a TSAC F with a non-degree, you know, for somebody in an enlisted side to get a six-month type course to really get the basic science, get the basic uh, uh, philosophy, get the basic biomechanics, et cetera. And then from the branch standpoint on the officer side, you know, part of our dialogue we have was, you know, get somebody that's already got an undergrad the Army already has a kinesiology program for their master's degree that they allow to go be a uh, work at the service academy at West Point to be essentially a kinesiologist uh, instructor there for all those new cadets. And they have a few other roles 
uh, in the Army, but that is the bulk of the driver. But to be able to do that and now have them oversee these performance centers. So now you have a green suitor that would essentially allow that person with their background, because they could have come out of any combat arms job, so they understand how we fight. They have a basic understanding of the science, and now they've went and got a master's degree to get a better understanding, and now they're going to essentially run that so they can bridge that gap for that performance center with that command team, where now your GS employee that might have only always been a civilian to try to bridge that gap. And we all know, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a basketball coach, you know, and I'm at Duke and I'm Mike Shinsetsky, I'm not going to probably hire a string coach that don't even never play basketball, don't understand what basketball is. And all they've ever done is play sand volleyball. And I would bring them in and tell them, you know, my player over here does not do a proper, uh, cut to the basket, you know, when he's doing his left side versus his uh, dominant side to make a layup. Mm -hmm. It's going to be too much. It's got to be taught for that strength coach. We kind of always hire from within people in that community where we have to do the same thing in the uniform. And I think to bridge that gap is you have somebody that's been trained within the organization like I was that has a passion and an understanding of the science to be able to now build that team and allow that team of experts. Cause again, if they go hire a string coach that has worked 10 or 15 years at a collegiate professional setting or in the special ops setting, that is a true subject matter expert. That uniform person's not, but what they are is they've got enough knowledge for the fight, enough knowledge for to hire the right string coaches and how that structure is supposed to work to allow now to allow that system to run well over the machine. And I think that's why even in our special ops community, I've done a lot of work and been on a lot of different special ops uh, performance centers. And I think that's where the gap is still consistent in that community. You have a lot of contracted string coaches that's never put a uniform on, that never has served in that capacity. And I'm not saying that makes them a better one, but that makes an opportunity when they sit in front of that special forces command team Sergeant Major and that, and that Colonel to be able to bridge that gap where they cannot do it. And again, they have told me that in that community, uh, they definitely could tell the difference when I come in and spoke to their commanders just about it. And they had just as much knowledge with me on the science, but they had never been in a fight. They didn't understand what it takes sometimes to do that mission. And they don't have rapport with that, that command team. Because we all know if I'm uh, playing a particular sport, you know, and I've went through that stress, I've endured the pain of whatever it requires for me to accomplish that sport to win a championship or to win a gold medal or whatever have you. I've got a different relationship with people inside that community than it is if I'm outside looking in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, that's interesting to hear. And like you said there, Donnie. 100% agree with you that it does help with having that that um, reduced barrier with the guys who are coming in from being in the service who actually understand the needs and demands and stuff in that culture as well. But hopefully over time that develops as well, like you say, the, the MOS and the help and support those guys through that structure. And, and most definitely, and that's one thing, John, you know, I didn't really talk about it, but um, sorry about that. 
But because I was enlisted and then an officer, I spent over nine years enlisted. I even had a better understanding versus if I would have been straight officer and went out of the Citadel or went out of West Point, I really never knew what it was like to even be a private. I never knew what it was like to just walk in a squad and conduct a basic uh, tactical operation versus being a commander. It's totally different. Yep. You know, when you're looking at it through that set of lens versus their set of lens and doing extra details and, and doing the formation runs where you just got to fall in and say left, right, left, right, kill. You cannot, you cannot say, well, you know, I'm not going to run today because I'm the commander. I'm going to do something else, you know? Definitely, man, definitely. I was going to ask you, Donnie, one thing as well. Like, obviously, for your time as well, uh, as well as setting up performance centers within the military, you also help set up the, uh, the occupational performance assessment test, the OPAN, you know, for initial screening for potential recruits. So what, what exactly is this screening test and how does this differ to um, the ACFT? Yeah, so this was, uh, we started this work back in uh, 2013, 2014. Uh, and it's essentially a, it's a same thing as an ASVAB. So you've probably heard of uh, an aptitude uh, battery test that allows people to enlist based on their intellect. With this test, your physical readiness and your combat potential uh, for the Army. So they essentially put it in three categories. Uh, and those three categories is black, gray, and gold. And based on what you score on these four tests, and that's your standing long jump, your trap bar deadlift, your seated medicine ball, two kilogram ball toss off your chest seated and a 20 meter anaerobic deep test that essentially has been done numerous years on some kind of fitness gram or something like that in middle school and elementary. Uh, so that tests your aerobic capacity. But what they do is they get it that is taken at the recruiting commands. So I'm interested in joining the military. I go speak to my recruiter. My recruiter obviously is going to give me the ASVAB. And then the next thing he's going to do, he's going to set me up for an OPAT, and he's going to get my medical screening. That's one of the three tiers now. Uh, since the first time in the history of military, they truly have a baseline physical assessment to look at your potential. Yeah, we don't want to, you know, we're not going to put the constraints on a, a new recruit to say, yeah, you know, you, you got to deadlift 500 pounds or you can't join, you know. So the numbers are not off chart. They're a little lower than I would recommend, um, but we had to come to a neutral ground with TRADOC and uh, CIMT uh, to allow us to have a number that allows everybody still had a capacity to serve. Because right now, the, it's at a national security threat for the United States. I mean, I don't know where you're sitting out, out of the UK and, and your footprint and stuff, but we've got less than 20% of the male and female population that it can even meet the baseline standards to come in. So wow. if we was to offer a draft right now, you know, it was Vietnam or it was, you know, Korea or it was World War One or World War II. We couldn't even meet the answer to mail um, because only 20 percent can meet the requirements to even serve. Uh, and that's a very, very small amount of population when you really peel the onion back. Um, so that's why we came up with a physical readiness type test to at least give. You know, if we're going to send somebody to be a fighter, they can at least meet the black standard. They can deadlift 160 pounds. You know, they can run a mile in 916. They can at least, you know, do some of those basic core tests versus you get somebody that says, I want to be a fighter. You know, I, I want to be an infantryman. I want to be a tanker or something like that falls into a fighting formation and they can't even pick up 100 pounds or they, they can't even run a mile in 12 minutes. 
Uh, and you see when they show up to basic training, there's a lot on those drill sergeants and a lot on that command team and that cadre team, excuse me, to get somebody like that prepared to go to their unit in 12 to 14 weeks. It's not going to happen. Uh, it's essentially going to be set up for more musculoskeletal injuries because they're going to be in overtraining from day one uh, because they're not even at least at a baseline aerobic capacity or baseline strength. And that was the end state of what we wanted to try to achieve is to grade them in those three categories. And then we say, well, you're at a gold standard. You're only eligible to apply for these jobs. It's the same thing on an academia side. If you don't score well enough on the academia side, you can't even apply for an SF job or for a communication job that's going to repair a radio. You know, you can't apply for those because you're missing the intellect and we know you're not going to retain the information. So why are we not doing the same thing in the physical realm? So that's where we bridged the gap. That started to be official in 2017 uh, for all new recruits. Uh, and that was one of the cornerstones of the H2F model. We started it there to let them get a baseline of understanding. So then as they serve and get an ACFT, they've already seen the deadlift. You know, they've already seen something equivalent to uh, an aerobic type test with the beat test and a two mile run. So some of that they've already seen at least a basic understanding. Cool. And I mean, how, how's that run then for them, Donnie? You're saying like gold, gray and black uh, standards for them. What, what were the costs are there like with regards to like the trap bar and their jumps and stuff like that as well? Is it just a specific number they're looking to hit or are you looking for a number of reps at the specific load? No, it's just one rep for like the deadlift. Okay. Uh, so it's, that's why I said it's very minimal because as part of the pilot, you know, the Army tested about 8,500 people uh, as part of the pilot. It was, it was across recruiting commands, uh, officer candidate schools, ROTCs within the, you know, different universities. Uh, and then I was fortunate at Fort Jackson when I was at the physical fitness school. I tested approximately 600 middle schoolers. That was only about 13 to 15 years old. And 88% of them passed the black standard to be an infantryman. You know, they deadlifted 160 pounds. They, they were able to run a, a mile in 916. So mm -hmm. the standards really are not that high, but at least it gives us a foundation to start with because anytime you bring in something new that the whole military and you've got to, like, for example, in the infantry, we would bring in 16,000 new recruits every year. They all got to meet the standard to be able to come in. You know, um, if you put it too high initially for the first time running those tests, you might not even meet your quota of recruiting 16,000 people, you know, and now it's going to be a problem and they're going to cancel the test. So that's why we did make the standards really low. But, you know, my prayer is that, you know, three to five years down the road, once the ACFT and H2F models get into place, that they go back and relook that and look at the data and start to put a little bit better uh, anecdotal date or anecdotal number on there that's going to be more equivalent to what, you know, the, the fighter needs to have. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome to have those in place and just see that develop over time. Donnie, um, I was going to ask you, obviously, as I said to you at the start, you first crept up my radar because I saw your presentation at Summer Strong, and obviously you've got a great relationship there with uh, Rich and Bert as well. Um, can you just tell us a little bit, because I know we are chatting a little bit off air before about the little partnership you've got going with Sorenex at the moment, developing tacti uh, the Tactical Athlete app. Just uh, talk a little bit more in depth about what that is and what that's going to entail. Yeah, so what we're looking at is, you know, getting rolling this out in uh, October of this year. 
Uh, so we've got about six more months. We're going to, you know, work diligent at least to get the infrastructure in place. Uh, but the end state is to be able to get a, a individualized prescription, you know, in the hands of either somebody currently serving or somebody that has aspirations want to serve. You know, so our, our initial wave is going to go out in tears. Uh, and it's just like how we fight in the Army, you know, when it comes to missions. You know, your your tier three through your tier one, you know, your tier ones are, are going to be your 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 most extreme, you know, type fighting and stuff of that nature. So we're going to grade it on that based on our questionnaire, based on their goals, based on things like maybe previous injuries and stuff of that nature is going to drive what tier they're in. Once they're identified into a tier, they're then going to be able to give, be given, obviously, a tactical athlete type assessment within that first week that's going to align with their goals. It's going to align with some of the things that they identified in that questionnaire. And now that's going to drive their prescription, which is going to then give them the corrective exercises uh, along with that to correct those deficiencies. So, for example, you've got somebody that fills it out and they've been serving for eight years and, you know, they talk about, you know, they've had back injury or they've had injuries from running or injuries of moving under a load. You know, something as simple as a baseline test with, I want you to put your body weight on your back. I want you to do 10 reps. You're going to video that and you're going to hang it on this site. Then we can screen that and determine, okay, one, he's missing mobility. Two, he's got a valgus collapse. Three, his heel's coming off and he's not generating any posterior chain activation. Mm -hmm. So with those simple uh, snapshots, he then gets a prescription to correct that deficiency versus, you know, we just say, okay, let's go do a foot march, you know, with the load on, or let's go, you know, let's go put 1500 steps in a mile and let's just have a lot of impact on the body. When we already know this soldier has been in eight years and they've had these uh, different injuries, you know, over the eight years. So we want to go back to the root and now provide a prescription, just like it would be, if I go to the doctor and I complain of migraines, the doctor is going to do some basic analysis and run some screening tests and maybe do a CT scan or whatever have you. They're going to put them on a prescription, okay? And then they're going to come back and follow up and they're going to get feedback to say, yeah, that worked or didn't work. Well, that, that's what we want to try to be able to provide, you know, not only for that initial recruit to allow them to set up for success before they show up to basic training, and actually are on their feet 15, 20 miles in a week. You know, most people don't realize that that's 30 and 40,000 steps. If I've been, an, if I've been a, a recruit and I've only ran one or two times a week and my volume goes up 150%, I'm already in overtraining. I'm going to have shin splints. I'm going to start to modify my gait with my run. But we can start to correct that before they ever show up. So at the end state is we want to break it down into those pillars Obviously, the foundation is still going to be strength. If the foundation is there already met, they're now going to get more specificity in those other tiers. That's going to allow them to now understand, like, how do I do training now and not have to do as much volume of running? Can I do some breath hold training to allow me now to get the same uh, metabolic or the same uh, aerobic effect on my body with less foot contacts? Uh, so now my body's actually recovering because I might be in a unit that says I got to go run five miles tomorrow and I don't have a choice because I'm in E5 and I'm in this unit and it's on my program. But I can, instead of doing extra work that causes more problems, 
I can be training the proper modalities that will prevent me from being in overtraining. Uh, so that is essentially what we're looking at uh, is to be able to, again, to get an individualized prescription that is tier-based that's going to allow that flow chart to identify their biggest weaknesses. Because at the end of the day, you are not going to correct any athlete if you cannot identify the weakness and make that weakness into a strength. They're going to always have that systemic problem or they're never going to reach their potential. Prime example, I can give you one just on my powerlifting uh, aspect. I squatted 500 pounds, again, at about, you know, uh, 227.5 kilograms back in um, 2014. So I went on a, a velocity-based programming with a gym aware, and I did a lot of video analysis within that first week coming out of that meet. And I determined off of my analysis that my knee collapse was a little over three quarters of an inch on my left side, which caused my hip and pelvic girdle to shift to my right. Uh, approximately 10 to 15 more percent of load was shifting to my right. So when I went in and added that prescription and controlled my fatigue level for the next year, I didn't change any in body weight. And I went from 227.5 to 272.5 within a calendar year uh, of my squat by maintaining not only my fatigue level, but also correcting the deficiency because I still believe that year prior, I had the actual strength to squat 600 pounds, but I could not reflect that on the platform under that load because mm -hmm. my body was compensating for that improper movement pattern uh, that I hadn't addressed. And once I addressed it, it essentially corrected itself and I was able then to reach my potential. That's cool, man. I like the fact that you say there's a, there's a screening process and then that individual training prescription for the guys using the apps as well. Uh, obviously it's track fatigue monitoring there as well. Is it just right now for you guys, the training prescription or have you got modalities built in there for the recovery and for their overall wellness or is it just very much training? Prescribed? Yeah, so it's going to be holistic. It's going to be all, all intake. Uh, but as I stated, the initial wave on it is going to be tied into those prescriptions. And then obviously as time goes on, we're going to continue to build on that exercise platform and that exercise prescription. So for example, if you have an athlete you know, that does not know how to do upper back engagement. Like they don't know how to essentially uh, stabilize the load from the upper back to the spine. So they're essentially not sustaining uh, that neutral spine throughout movement pattern. So we determine, is it an upper body uh, issue or is it an, at the pelvic girdle? If it becomes an upper body, their prescription might be something as simple as three scat retraction from a pull-up bar, three sets of 25 with a two to three inches, I, I don't know movement and hold for a three count. So they're gonna do those in between sets on a deadlift. That is a simple prescription mm -hmm. that can now allow them to learn how to activate the upper back to stabilize the loads before we do a clean, before we do a deadlift, you know, before we move into an RDL or any exercise that requires me to move a load from the floor uh, to a standing position. Uh, so that is something very simpler. That's one uh, uh, modality. A number two modality might be, you're gonna essentially take a 12 inch band, you're gonna place it 
on your wrist, okay? And you're gonna do all your barbell exercises with your arm shoulder width at the same time you're gripping with the band trying to pull apart. So you're gonna force yourself to keep the arm and the grip active throughout that movement pattern because we all know a novice athlete when it comes to a barbell at certain times of that lift, their hands are not engaged. And we all know is if I can engage my hands, not only is my central nervous system turn on, but my upper back has a higher pro probability of turning on because now I'm actively engaging the pull. It's not all about the push every time, mm -hmm. depending on what lever and system we're trying to use. But that's a simple piece that we could be able to tie in with just having issues of lacking upper body engagement for a cling or a deadlift. That sounds awesome. That sounds awesome, Donnie. I think when that launches, a lot of guys will be able to jump on that and get a lot, a lot of benefit for that going into their you know, chosen specialties of the careers. Um, yeah, because we're really looking at to keep it very inexpensive. You know, we're looking at it, you know, it's going to be under $15 uh, initially on, on the app for, you know, essentially a low end tier. The high end is going to be around $25, you know, for the app. So it's going to be very reasonable. Uh, it's going to give them an opportunity uh, to have a, a turnkey one-stop shop uh, for all those soldiers that don't have their HTF center up and running yet, because <laughs> some organizations are not going to get theirs for six years. Wow. This is a 10 year model. Uh, the army allocated, you know, over $60 million for this program, but it's just unfortunate. You can't hire that much, uh, 360 strength coaches that quick. You can't uh, get all those facilities built overnight and you can't, you know, uh, ensure that all the, the leadership is, uh, in place to execute this program overnight. No, that was awesome, dude. Um, and like you say, very, very reasonable uh, price limit to get in on that as well. I was going to ask you, Donnie, obviously, before we jumped on this call, we were chatting a little bit about, you know, what's going on with you and your education stuff. Um, and I ask every, every guest who comes on this show what they're engaged in for the, their own development. So on that, could you give me a, a book, an app, or a website you've personally found useful either in your own education or your own development? Well, I tell you, John, it's, it's hard for me to pin just one book uh, just because I am an avid reader. That is my, uh, I say, go-to for me uh, if I can't go hands-on. If I can't go somewhere and, and get a face-to-face -face and, and be able to touch it and feel it, uh, my preference is to read, I guess, because I'm old school still. Uh, you know, I, I come up in through education you know, I turned 50 next year. My education, we didn't really have no computers or nothing back then. I definitely use it a lot more than I did. Um, but reading, you know, I, I'm I'm a big fan of the gold standard from the NSCA, you know. So whether it's, you know, a scientific journal, I'm a big fan of, of spending one to two hours weekly, you know, reading through there. I've got specific topics a lot of times I'm, I'm pulling on. Like right now, I'm looking at a lot of stuff in speed and agility. Uh, I've been reading a lot of that literature these last uh, few weeks. Uh, I, I kind of change uh, based on where I am and what I'm trying to look at uh, to grow because there's certain areas I'm very knowledgeable and there's certain areas I still don't know enough. So I would say the scientific journal community is one of my go-to uh, areas. Uh, my second piece would be, you know, anything um, to do with foundational stuff. So if I'm talking to a new strength coach, you know, and, and they're looking at, hey, what should I be reading? I'm all about the foundation. So when it comes to the tactical side, the NSCA puts out a good TSAC-F type book. Uh, I really like the essentials of tactical strength condition. I think that's a good foundation to start with. 
I do like a lot of Mark Ripto stuff, uh, whether it's if you're looking at the programming side, the practical programming, or whether if you're looking at barbell training, I think he has a really uh, simplistic approach, but he's got it rooted in the foundations. And I think a lot of times what we learn in the universities, is, is, it needs to be realigned and redone, but it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, that's one of the main reasons I'm wanting to get a PhD is to be able to try to help re redo some curriculums for our up and coming strength coaches. Um, but I think a lot of them are so far removed from the application that they're still teaching 1980 science and it's changed. It's changed a lot. I, lo I love everything Cal Deitch does uh, from a triphasic standpoint. Uh, anytime, you know, I can break down a movement pattern to allow me to get it closer to gameplay or closer to a warrior, uh, it's more realistic. Prime example, you know, if I'm coming off a, a French contrast like, you know, Cal does with a, a heavy strength block for a couple of reps, moving right into, you know, a ballistic plyometric movement into an overtraining like a, a, a band overjump, you know, all that goes into play because, again, if I take a, a soldier and put him in the battlefield and he's stacked on a building, you know, he could have to move a casualty. Uh, and that's his strength component to all of a sudden, you know, he's sprinting to another room uh, to now he's got to bound over a wall. So, you know, all that starts to line up when I talk about sports specificity. So I am definitely a big fan. Uh, if you'd like to read periodization, uh, Bombay, uh, Bombay's periodization book is really good. Um, that's, that's another one that I, I still reference that on a regular basis, especially when I'm working with new strength coaches and things of that nature. Um, or if I'm going to go do a presentation, I really like to review some of those and highlight that. And then I'm also, John, a big fan of, you know, going to seminars and, and conferences. I typically average four or five a year, uh, and I'm one of those nerds that sit in the front row, and, and I'm old school, you know. You see the new people, they'll pull their iPad up, and they'll just take a picture to PowerPoint, you know, and that's probably what I should be doing. But I've got the old yellow memo pad out, and I'm, I'm writing down a few notes. Uh, I can – I can reflect back when I was a baseball coach, you know, back in uh, 03, you probably don't know Jack Leggett. Leggett he was uh, the head baseball coach for Clemson University at the time. And I was there to, uh, at a seminar and he was given the, cl the class. I was sitting in the second row, the first row. People had already beat me to it. And uh, I was just steadily taking notes, you know, the whole time he was talking. And about 45 minutes into the presentation, he said, coach, stand up. You know, and he told me to tell me my name was and everything. Uh, and then, you know, he told me to sit down, but he told everybody in there, because all of us were South Carolina uh, baseball coaches in the state. He essentially told him, told everybody in there, if I'm worried about anybody this year, if y'all got to play him, that's who I'd be worried about. He said, because most of y'all in here are not taking notes. And that year we went on to be undefeated and we lost only one game uh, in the state championship. And it, it just, you know, something he caught and captured and reflected. It's huh. just my, my intent. I, I go with everything 110%. That's the way my da dad raised me. And he's like, if you're going to do anything, either do all or don't even show up. Don't even go out there and try if you're not going to give 110%. So, yes, I if I have a vote, I'm going to be at the seminars. And I'm going to be at those locations so I can pick those uh, subject matter experts' brain. Uh, but, yes, I do read. Uh, I do like uh, a lot of stuff on the, the breathing. I've been doing a lot of that the last six months to a year. Uh, reading a lot of that literature. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, so, yes, that's just, that's just what I love is to try to learn something new every day or every week um, so that I can continue to 
be an advocate, you know, for the athletes I work with. Oh, that's awesome, Donnie. Thank you very much, man. That's a, a nice comprehensive list there, dude. So I'll make sure I'll pop them into our show notes as well. Um, obviously, Donnie, you know, thank you so much, dude. It's been awesome getting the opportunity to chat to you. Like you know, said at the start, I was expecting like a lot of energy and a lot of passion. I wasn't disappointed in that. If anyone's, um, you know, listening to this who wants to reach out, find out a bit more about you or get your advice on anything, what's the best way they can do that? Well, best way for me is an email, and it's, uh, you know, CPT, uh, my last name, Bigham, B-I-G-H-A-M, uh, and that's at yahoo.com. That's the best way for me. Uh, second best uh, would be to reach out to me on uh, Instagram, uh, and that's at one-time powerlifting, uh, all one word. Um, and then lastly, you know, I'm not opposed to cell phone. So my cell phone number is um, 706-505-3620. Uh, I do prefer a text. If it's the first time they've reached out to me, just to kind of introduce yourself, you know, let's set up a time uh, to have a dialogue. Um, I tell you still right now, John, I probably have at least two or three phone calls a week on an average that I set up off of a text or off an email that I spoke at some conference or I, you know, posted something on Instagram or whatever it was um, that, again, at the end of the day, my whole passion and desire is for other people to have a better opportunity to impact, impact their athletes. And that's the same thing I told everybody from the tap seat. I'm not going to give you the 100% solution. I want to give you 80 to 85%. I don't want you to have to go through all the work that I had to do. I want to give you an opportunity to be in a driver's seat. I have now sent out what I call the Bible for the tap seat. I probably sent it out to about 30 different strength coaches right now. Uh-huh. And every one of them just reached out to me. I sent them everything I had. At the end of the day, I, I don't, I'm not going to get anything for it. If I can't help that organization uh, to be better, then what's my purpose in life? You know what I mean? If I hoard it and I try to just say, okay, I'm going to try to make a dollar off this or whatever have you. I had an old Sergeant Major back in the day. You know what he told me? He said, Major Bigham, you need to quit giving all this information out. You need to retire and do a contract and go ahead and start making money for all this. I said, it's not about me. It's about that soldier that has to fight tomorrow. I want them to get an opportunity. So, yes, I do have a YouTube. Uh, I got to get caught up on that. I have not uh, posted any good uh, information on that in a while. Uh, my YouTube is the exact same as that one-time powerlifting there. Um, but now that I'm retired uh, and I'm going to have some more white space because, again, I just I just resigned from uh, Northwestern High School uh, here in the last week. Uh, so I will have more white space. So I do foresee there's going to be a lot of stuff moving forward now, especially with the app. Uh, every one of those exercises is going to get posted on YouTube. Uh, so we're going to spend probably a month uh, doing a lot of video analysis, a lot of video shooting. Uh, so I would just say be on the lookout, you know, for uh, the YouTube uh, starting to load up uh, with some hopefully some good content, some good information uh, that they can utilize that uh, to make a difference for them. That's awesome. That's awesome, dude. I mean, I'll, I'll link all those in our show notes as well, dude, so anyone can reach out and, you know, hit you up with any questions they may have. Um, once again, Donnie, I know at the start you said you'd hopefully have a, a few golden nuggets for people. I think people are going to walk away with this with a sack full of nuggets on this, mate. It's been awesome, dude. Really, really appreciate your time, bud. It's been, it's been a really good chat, dude. Thank you so much again, John, for reaching out and just allowing me to, uh, an opportunity to have your platform uh, to share to your listeners and, and your friends and your family uh, to, again, uh, just uh, have them to have those nuggets 
so that they can, you know, make a difference today, you know, for the soldiers, the warriors, for the athletes they're working with. That's awesome. Appreciate Thank you, you Donnie. Hi, guys. Really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. The continued support in us can ask you to do me a simple favor. First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.